Okay, so we're uh, continuing with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is the 67th lesson in the series, and uh, we are on Element 6, and this is the 18th lesson on Element 6. Under Roman numeral 1, you can see the element, the uh, eight elements listed, and uh, we're not going to review any of that at this point. Uh, Element 6R is what we're on today, justification, uh, but I decided to make the title a little longer, Justification by Grace Working Through Faith, and or as it's known more commonly, Justification by Faith. So um, in Element 6, we've been looking at what it means to receive Jesus Christ. The gospel is totally by God's initiative. And it's totally by his grace. No one can come to, the fa- to Jesus lest the Father draws him. You, God initiates. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It, it's the, if you're in Christ today, it's you're, in, you're in Christ because of God's initiation and God's grace alone. But God's grace in a mystery makes you willing to receive and willing to respond in such a way that you really do respond. And God holds us those culpable who do not respond favorably to the offer of his grace. Yet, uh, uh, man's will has to be set free by the Lord. Um, so, so far in their salvation, we've looked at the very word saved and salvation. And sozo is the Greek verb, soteria, the noun. And uh, that's kind of one of the most misused and misunderstood words in the church today. So we'd spend some time defining what that really means. Because it's uh, people will say... Uh, are you saved? And they'll say, when did you get saved? By which they mean, when did you receive Christ? When were you converted? When did you become a Christian? But actually, you were saved in all eternity. God foreknew and predestined everything. You were saved uh, when he created mankind. You were saved at the the cross and death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you appropriated your salvation when you received Jesus Christ. But you, and you will be, continue to be saved until your salvation is manifested completely on the other side of eternity. So it's not actually a word that has to do with one-time experience or a point in your life. You have been saved, are being saved, and will continue to be saved uh, until your salvation is fully manifest, the other side of of glory. So um, we looked at all sorts of other words, convict, confess, contrition, repentance, remorse, what true faith is, that's another mis- very misunderstood concept in our day. And then we actually spent uh, four work weeks looking upon and, on grace upon grace. And some of those weeks we um, reviewed a series that, that was uh, 16 messages called Grace Upon Grace series that we try to get everyone who comes to our church to listen to. We consider that a very foundational concept. And... Uh, um, really what we covered uh, in terms of grace being our lifelong journey the last uh, couple times is uh, coming into more grace and less of a performance-based approach to God as being kind of something we have to kind of constantly reorient ourselves to the, in the gospel every day, and the gospel is something to be lived by, not a one-time experience. That's actually going to be added to the Grace Upon Grace series as part 17. So with that in mind... We're all the way down to the bottom of the page. Today we're going to look at justification 
by faith. Now, if you know any church history at all, we're about to start a church history class, you would know that uh, justification by faith was a major emphasis of the Reformation. Of course, it's a major emphasis in Paul's writing. It's a major emphasis to St. Augustine, um, Anselm, others. But um, some people date this to the Reformer. Some people date this to, uh, to Luther and the Reformer, some to Augustine, others even back a little further. Uh, what, one of the things we're going to consider today is that the modern understanding of justification by faith is a very reduced concept from what the Bible is really talking about. And um, that position has been brought out by a number of people who haven't always been well received. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a very important message for the church today. So let's uh, start. One of our theme verses in this whole section has been, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace always works through faith, and it is not your own doing. It's not initiated by you. I, uh, we use the ESV translation because it brings it out pretty clearly. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. One of the important reasons it's understand, uh, important to understand that, there, that man's free will has nothing to do with it is because if it does, it allows you a room for self-righteousness. And so there's no way to maintain a humble posture if it's you who chose to be a Christian and you who chose to, to you know, these things. You know, if the, if the credit doesn't go to God alone, then there's no basis for humility. And we need humility like the oxygen that we breathe. Humility is the, our lifeblood. Uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, God is the author and the initiator of grace working through faith. Flip over and we'll start to look at this word justification. Now, we're going to read a little bit out of Genesis 15. As you know, I always limit myself to what I can fit on the front and back of one page. And I wish I could have us do the whole of Genesis 15, but I will also limit myself to uh, finishing and so we can still have our 1030 meeting. So uh, we're, I, I would really encourage you to go back over this notes, re-listen re to this podcast, and when you do, pause it and read all of Genesis 15 and give, it, give the whole chapter some thought. Uh, we lose a lot sometimes by uh, not being able to keep these things in, in a larger context. So in Genesis 15, 4, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Abraham, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you are able to number him, uh, if you are able to number them, I'm sorry, look to the stars and number them. And he says, then he said, so shall your offspring or your seed in some translations, the seed being Isaac and the seed being Christ. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, um, we're going to look at in a minute. Uh, this this, this uh, verse is referred to quite often in the New Testament. We're going to look at three of the most important passages that refer to this verse. Uh, 
But a couple of things I want you to remember. One of the things that causes us to miss the message of Scripture in our day is we have been used to uh, the modern way of doing hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is we have our systematic theology or our preconceived idea, then we find a proof text to back that up. So you, you say, see, these three texts. So we're used to interpreting text outside their context. But the context needs to be not only the paragraph it's in, not only the chapter it's in, but the book it's in, and the whole Bible, and the cultural milieu it's spoken, and what it meant to the original hearers, and what God was foreshadowing in Christ through it, and so forth. And all verses need to be considered with all of that, all the time. That's why one of the first things we try to do when anyone comes to our church, we find Almost everyone who's grown up in Bible-believing churches today would affirm that the, the whole Bible is the Word of God, but almost no one has ever read the whole Bible. So we try to get you on a program whereby you read the New Testament, oh, seven or eight times to get started, and the Old Testament three or four or five times to get started, and then you get started studying the Bible. And uh, because when you have the backdrop of the whole Bible, uh, you will... You miss less of the message all the time. And it's a very manageable thing if we don't have this American instant mashed potatoes uh, mentality. Have you ever had instant mashed potatoes? They're horrible. And uh, what's kind of amazing, you know, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and I actually remember, uh, you know, just before they had color television, I remember uh, they used to have instant coffee. And instant coffee was quite popular. And you know, Stephen is sitting in the back, and when I mention instant coffee, he's, he might have to go down to the restroom. <laughs> you know, like, he, I mean, instant coffee is terrible. And uh, although I guess it's making a comeback in some places. But uh, it's, just, it's just disgusting. You know, things, Chris Woos, you know, Chris Woos agreed with many of my points over the years, but nothing more important than instant coffee is terrible. You should all go to Chris's office early some morning, have him make you a cup of coffee. <laughs> 30 of us can just show up at one time, but uh, with his fancy coffee maker, but um, no crummy, co like he would, you probably wouldn't even lower yourself to Starbucks, but um, so we're kind of used to this whole instant thing, and uh, it's killing us. It really is. Um, so one of the things that you need to consider is when the, old, when the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself quote from the Old Testament, they are referring you to the whole chapter at least that it's from, and really the whole book and the whole idea. And if you really want to understand what you're reading in Romans, when he's quoting from the Old Testament, go back and read the whole chapter, at least, of, of what he's quoting. And so one of the th most important things to do is to understand this is not just about the verse, he believed the Lord and accounted him as righteousness. Because what did he believe the Lord about? not what we would call justification by faith, not about atonement, but about this promise of a seed and the promise of his seed being as many as the stars 
and really about the promise that all would be made right in all of creation in all the heavens and that uh, redemption and restoration would go beyond everything that was was uh, destroyed at the fall and so forth God is he's made righteous and believing God about much more than the atonement and about much more than a individualistic personal application of it which leads to a very self-centered what's in it for me Christianity which we're going to talk more about as the as the message goes on so right after he says but oh lord how will i know that i shall possess it now you have to kind of whenever you're reading a question like that compare it to other people in the bible reading that question remember that mary when the angel said to her that she would uh, conceive by the holy spirit even as a virgin and have a child named jesus and so forth she says well how will this happen and God blesses her and promises that she'll be blessed for all eternity and by all nations and, and, and by for the rest of God's people forever. However, Zechariah, when the angel says to him that his wife is going to conceive a child, he says a very similar question. Well, how will this be since I'm an old man and so forth? So obviously, and, and God uh, chastised him for that by causing him to be uh, deaf and dumb, or at least dumb, until uh, unable to speak until John was born. Because it really gets down to like how they're asking the question. In Abraham's case, in Mary's case, they believe God was going to do it. They're just asking, so how are you going to bring this about? This is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, can I get an advanced, you know, preview of what's going to happen? And uh, so... Zechariah's case, he's not believing it's going to happen. And that's the big difference. So when um, God, when Abraham asked God, if, if you've read the whole chapter, you'll know we've talked about this chapter quite a bit, and, and I've at least mentioned it in three messages in the last few years. You know, God has Abraham bring a heifer and all these different animals, and he has Abraham cut them down the middle. Because, of course, there's no with death, there's no atonement without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness. And he has him cut them down the middle and lay them out with a path between them. And then it becomes dark, and there's kind of like a terror from God that comes. And it's sort of an eerie scene, and it'd be a good thing. You know, if you were a great movie maker with special effects, you'd probably like doing that scene. Uh, you know, and, uh, and then God himself walks through the pieces. And to modern ears and eyes, it's like, what the heck is with all that? You know, uh, you know what it's, what's the heck is with all of that is the same thing of, of God giving Adam and Eve skins to cover themselves because without the shedding of blood, you can't put, get an animal skin without killing the animal. Right? So, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. And God is saying that there will be a Lamb of God, there will be an atonement, and that He Himself will, will be the covenant keeper. All covenants in the, in the Bible, the covenant recipients, Adam, Noah, Abraham, the, the children of Israel after the time of Moses, D David, all covenant recipients fail and fail and fail 
been there <laughs> and uh, done that. And God himself will provide the obedience to the covenant. And so he's telling Abraham something much bigger than he was personally made righteous, but that all will be right with the whole creation eventually. And that he himself will assure that to be because his, his own son will make it happen. At this point, we should be struggling with weeping if we really get it. So, because that's, you know, what God always intended. He had an eternal decree, I, is what I call it. That's not a, that's my own theological term, which I have a tendency to do too much probably. But, you know, his, he had an eternal covenant, an eternal purpose. He foreknows, predestines, and declares all things. And he, his purpose is immutable it's unchangeable he didn't um freak when adam and eve sinned he didn't go like oh my god n-e-m n-e-m it's a twister like uh, i wasn't planned i wasn't prepared for this <laughs> he just kept moving according to his foreknown predestined plan and he knew that he was spending a long time making sure that all of mankind knew that they were condemned under sin, that we were failures in the covenant, that every covenant, you know, some covenant theologians misunderstand the whole covenant theology thing by saying that Adam's covenant was a covenant of works because he had to not eat of the tree. Adam's covenant was a covenant of grace. He didn't create himself, and he didn't create himself in a relationship with God, and he didn't give himself a calling to take dominion and cultivate the garden and... and zoologically classify the animals and so forth. It was all by grace. And all covenants have requirements for obedience and requirements in, in to not disobey. And they all have sanctions if you disobey. And in all covenants of the Bible, man fails. The, you were given this gracious... Uh, it's as if you were given this wonderful Christmas gift that had some assembly required and by the and you you ever done this when you're a kid like you're building a model by the time you get it built you've ruined the thing <laughs> you know like too much glue here broke this piece there mispainted this and, and the whole thing is like let's just throw this away uh that is how we have been you know received the gifts of god's grace not very well and that he himself would be the guarantor of covenant sanctification and obedience. So this verse was never about a modern, narcissistic, hedonistic, the way we share the gospel today, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's starting off on the wrong foot of selfishness. God loves you, and you better get right with his plans. <laughs> Not only for your life, but for his church and for his bringing salvation and restoration to the entire creation. And his bringing a significant measure of that restoration before his son comes back to receive a kingdom that's been prepared for him. That's the biblical gospel. So let's look at this holy, some of these verses 
perhaps in a new light. Um, one of the things that uh, John has a favorite author that he likes named Douglas Wilson. He has a book that says, Reformed is Not Enough. And I have the book in my books to read pile, but my books to read pile, I regularly check to see if it's out on Kindle yet, because I don't want to read it if it's not on Kindle. So uh, that's my books to read pile. I just every once in a while look up and see, is there a Kindle version yet? And uh, send an email to... Peter Lightheart asking him to make sure one of his books got made in Kindle, and he said, sent me an email back saying, please ask the publisher. <laughs> I would love that. All right, so Romans 4, 2 through 5 says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So remember our original theme from Ephesians 2. This, uh, but not before God, because that's a ridiculous idea. So he kind of says... You know, if he was, but of course that's not the case because nobody could, right? Who would have something to boast about before God? Only a fool. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, some translations say reckoned, reckoned um, some translations say counted, I think that's the ESV. There's a couple that say counted. It was counted to him as righteousness. It's an accounting term. And it's a judicial term. You know, in a, in a law court, you know, uh, the defendant is accounted innocent or guilty. And, uh, and the crime that he's accounted innocent or guilty for is always quite specific. Right? So justification, if you go back, this was a word that was worth going back and reading what's called a lexicon. And a lexicon will go back and tell you how the Septuagint used it in the Old Testament, and then how the ancient Greeks used it all the way back to Homer. And uh, this was a word that was worth doing all that. And so it's, a, it's an accounting term, and it's, and it's uh, a legal term. But it's more than getting made acquitted for one sin to one person. Okay, so... Now, to the one who works, his wages is not credited as favor or grace, is another translation, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts in, clings to, relies on, that is, the word of the person because of their deeper belief in the character and trustworthiness of the person. Go back to every temptation, first one in the Garden of Eden. The first thing he did was undermine the word of God. Indeed, hath God said... And then once he had gotten her attention, he undermined the character of God. And he said, oh, God knows that in the day you eat it, you'll, your eyes will be open and you'll be like one of us, knowing good from evil and so forth. God's trying to keep you from something. God doesn't want you to get married, so go and get your own solution. You know, I, let me just submit to you that all the frustrations in your life, all the frustrations in your life, are from you wanting things on your time period and your agenda instead of trusting God and walking with him in the process. So that is all the trouble you have at work, in your marriage, with your kids, finances, everything. Um, now the one who works, his wage is not credited or counted as grace, but what is due, but the one who does not work but believes... Trust in him, his character, who he is, 
who makes right justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or as righteousness. Now, um, again, well, we'll get into this in a minute. Let's keep going with these scriptures. Even so, Abraham believed God. This is still Paul. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Again, so he's quoting this same passage from Genesis 15, uh, 6. However, he's, whenever the biblical writers are doing that, look at the whole context of what they're quoting. They're limited for paper like I am, worse than I am, because they're writing these things on papyrus, and they don't have word processors and <laughs> everything like that, they're tr and so forth. So, and they're keeping it manageable so people read it. So, uh, or were we... Uh, so Abraham believed God that it was reckoned to him as righteous. Therefore, he's the gen be sure that as those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, saying to Abraham, all nations shall be blessed in you, which is the original promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Most translations translate it all peoples or all families. Paul is translating it all nations. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, um, again, so there's a context here that has to do with a much bigger purpose. It has to do with the reconciliation of all the nations. That there will be people from tr every tribe, tongue. And it's not, there's actually a few groups out there that have a goal to get at least the American modernized reduced gospel to every person on the planet, and then they think Jesus will come back. First of all, there will be a restored complete gospel, and there will be restored churches who, ha who, have, a, who have a full witness to Christ in their locality in every little village and nook and cranny in the whole world. That's what we're actually after. Um, and if... And if we're wrong, I'd rather die trying for that. <laughs> uh, James, just so we can uh, uh, get a little perspective, says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wait a minute. Are you changing the program here? I'll read more carefully. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was per perfected. We're, he's saying the same thing we said on the other page in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. By grace you've been saved with for faith. It's not a, of yourself. It's the gift of God. But we're his workmen. True grace and true faith produce a change of life, a new creation, and produce godly works. You know that you've received the gospel when, uh, because the fruit is changing. Was not Abraham our father justified by uh, works? Where were we? I lost my pace. Uh, and and uh, as a result of the works, his faith was perfected. And the word perfected means completed. It was fleshed out. The word became flesh. Um, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Again, he quotes from Genesis 5, 15, 6. And it was, he was called the friend of God. Because as Jesus defines friendship, a friend knows what his master's doing. 
So when he's called the friend of God, when, when God says, I can't come down and judge Sodom and Gomorrah or do this thing in the earth without consulting first my prophets, my, my king, my prophet. Abraham is one of the first great foreshadowings of Christ in that he was a king, a prophet, a priest, uh, and so forth. But, of course, like in all of those foreshadowings, my thing is messed up today. Uh, he failed in his mission. Came short, as all foreshadowings of Christ did. Um, and Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God because he understood God's bigger purposes. That's the whole metaphor of this, you know, every sand, every kernel of sand on the beach, every or in the whole world, every star in the heaven, and so forth, that God is going to make everything right in the universe. God's not just interested in making you justified. He's interested in making you part of his cosmic restoration that will restore everything. The alignment of the planets will be affected. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Children will play by the serpent's hole and not be bit. And it, those kind of things, that's an important thing when you're raising kids because it will be done to you according to your faith. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, he's not preaching something. I won't name the authors, but some very good authors who I read their books actually have a, I have a two-part series by one of them on James. And, it, you know, this much commentary on five chapters of the Bible. And uh, guy, guy's a great scholar and so forth. But he actually starts out by calling James a primitive epistle as if James's thought is not as developed as Paul. Now that is, a, that is actually a slap in the face to the doctrine called the plenary inspiration of Scripture, which is based on Psalm 119, 160, the sum of thy word is truth, and 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Every jot and every tittle of Scripture is true. And it's one sum it has to be understood in the context of every other scripture. And there's no scripture that's more primitive than other scriptures. And so when Luther called James a right, downright strawy epistle, he was most wrong. Because what he's just saying is the same thing Paul said on the previous page and the same thing Jesus says that, you're, that if you really trust in God, you will be recreated in such a way that there will be a new person that comes out. And uh, that's David said in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me, restore the joy of my salvation. Then, and only then, will transgressors be converted to you. Then I will teach the lawless your ways. So, all he's saying is that true faith produces a new creation and therefore new works that follow. Now, the word justified, Greek is uh, dikaiao, and uh, in the narrow sense to render righteous or such he, as he ought to be, to declare or pronounce one to be just or righteous. 
but it's also to make him free, set him at liberty. If I didn't have room for it, but up above I mentioned Acts 13, 37 through 39, which the uh, NASB and uh, the ESV translate the word as free twice in those passages, whereas the New King James and the NET use the word justify twice in those passages. But he's saying all things that you could not be made free or justified from the law. But the reason the, they use the word free is because the translators know it's a much bigger thing than what we've come to believe is personal justification. You've been made part of wherever the Spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty. And the freeing of the old uh, creation, subject as it was to the law of sin and death, to be made part of the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That's why it's more than, uh, than you might think. Um. So the, the word is used 40 times in 35 verses in the New Testament. 29 of those 40 are, used, are by Paul. Most of the rest are actually in the Gospels. And Jesus has some interesting things to say about justification, especially in the parable of the, uh, the publican and the Pharisee and who goes home justified. However, to really understand, we must reconsider the entire context of both the New Testament and Paul in particular. Remember what the apostles were doing. Paul tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 that a veil lies over the hearts of the children of Israel when they read the Jewish scriptures to this day, just like when Moses went into the presence of God and he uh, had so much of the glory of God on him that as he came out, his face shone with glory, and the children of Israel weren't ready for that yet, so he had to put a veil over his, his self, foreshadowing that no one would be able to receive and understand and experience the full glory until they were atoned for in Christ. And Paul is saying that the veil is lifted in Christ. And that's why Jesus twice in the day of his resurrection in Luke 24 First to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, then to the disciples in the other room. He tells them that everything in the law of Moses, the writings, the, and, and the Psalms, what, what he, would, he would have actually used the word in Hebrew for um, the, 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 the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, uh, it, which is how the Hebrews looked at the whole Bible. We taught on that on Tuesday night if you want to know how the Jews looked at the whole Bible. But anyway, um, he is saying that everything in them pertains to him. And if you want to understand your New Testament right, what you need to understand is that all of the New Testament and all the New Testament writers are Hebrew guys that are saying, oh, this is what it meant all along. Our rabbis were supposed to be the interpreters of Scripture in our synagogues, and we fought. You, and so, if you were a good, uh, you know, Jewish boy, you would try to be associated with the best of the rabbis, just as Paul wanted to be with Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi of his day, because they were the best interpreters of the word. But when Jesus got done speaking, 
at the, on the Mount, Sermon of the Mount, he, the true rabbi, who the whole thing was truly about, at the end, they, the people understood enough to say, oh, this man teaches like a real rabbi. He has authority, not like the scribes who are making up a lot of crap. He really gets it. And they understood at least that much just from the Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus was actually progressively unveiling more to his disciples, telling them in private, and after the resurrection he made clear, is it was all about me all along. Every bit of it. Adam was the first Adam, I'm the second Adam. Abel was the first prophet, I'm the true prophet. All the way through. Listen to John's series again called uh, Christ in the Old Testament to get started on how to, to get started with that. He has 15 messages, 16 I guess. Uh, there's only eight messages? What's that? 18 messages. Okay. 18 messages that will help you get started to, um, to see the over 3,000 different ways that the Old Testament speaks of Christ. So when you go take your college classes and they say that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies, say, <clears throat> Excuse me, it's more like 33,000. In all due respect, thank you very much. Uh, they were re-examining in light of the entire Bible. They were putting on new lenses. You know, if you put on like certain color sunglasses, everything has that tint. Uh, where new paradigms or frameworks. Um, and what we're trying to do here and trying to say is that the new frameworks brought about the reform, by the reformers and continuing among various biblically conservative Protestant traditions to, the, to this day is the wrong lenses. It's more than your personal justification. It includes that, but it's, it's God's making you right with the whole cosmos in making you part of his plan to make all things new. And the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem have already arrived in Christ and in Pentecost and in the birth of the church. And the new Jerusalem is, is in our midst. And we've come to, to Mount Zion already. And all the promises of God, you'll hear in various Christian thinking that you know, all the promises of God just pertain to Israel and some after the second coming. That's nonsense. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Everything the Old Testament says about the people of God uh, is, applies to the people of God. And there's a great continuity between the covenants, not a discontinuity. Now, let's see if I can get into this. So... I've kind of hit on it all the way through, so that helps. Uh, I want to introduce you to the... You'll you have to remember that although it's given lip service to, almost every way of looking at Scripture in our day uh, smashes, kills, uh, rapes, and destroys the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of, of Scripture. So we say we believe the whole Bible is the Word of God, and then we have various ways of looking at it that take the message out and reduce it 
to Gnostic and, and unbelieving and anti-supernatural and smaller views of God and a God that's less sovereign and less providential and doesn't foreknow anything. And, and uh, we have various, various ways of, of not of saying we believe in the plenary. And, and, you know, these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the principles of man. That's a pretty good summary of the, what we're up against in our day. And God always allows it to be that whenever he's doing something in the earth. Because his new people and the new thing he's doing always is taken out of the old thing. Many of you are at a place in Christ where you realized, well, I knew there was a God and so forth. And I was brought up and... And, but I just had this deep sense that it must be something much bigger. And now I'm starting to get set free from the legalism and the lack of power and the smallness of purpose and the selfishness of purpose. You know, like a calling in our day and age is interpreted in a very narcissistic way. You know, so that I have a calling so, you know, I can somehow find some security and identity in that. Holy cow. Um, what you need to do is, like any doctrine of Scripture, take justification and really embrace a doctrine called the plenary inspiration of Scripture for the first time and go back and rethink it and don't interpret Paul out of the context of everything that he was. So when you read Paul, first understand he's a second temple Jew living in a certain culture. And he's thoroughly, he's, he's on, in order for him to be uh, discipled by Gamaliel, that means he would have memorized the entire Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today, and most of the commentary on them called the Midrash and the Mishnah. And he was living in that world but he'd also been brought up in Tarsus, and therefore he was fluent in Greek and Roman, or Latin, Roman. Uh, he, he was Roman. He was a citizen of Rome, and he's living in all these contexts, and he's primarily rethinking the whole Old Testament in light of Christ. And everything he says has to be put in that larger framework. Now, I've listed a few books there for those of you who are into Bible scholarship because I know there's a lot of young guys that are passing me in, the, in these realms in our church, and I'm so happy about that because I love learning from you <laughs> and just sitting on the back porch taking in whatever you're sharing. And, uh, and there's lots of guys who are really getting good at this stuff. And uh, these books are a little bit harder than even probably most of the intermediate books on our book list. But for those of you who really want to wade into them, they're very good. I'm not going to, they're all listed on the page with the authors and they would get you started. Um, and I hopefully on past time, I'm going to just try to find a way to end here. I, I want you to kind of see that it, the reductionist radical individual versus God's corporate and cosmic restoration purposes I've been talking about the whole time. Those who God foreknew, he also predestined. Now what Paul does in Romans 8, by the way, 28 through 39, I wish I could read the whole passage, but he gives us in verse 29 and 30 a summary 
of what God does when he's working with someone. And he doesn't hit all the, all the words we could have, that we've used in this series. But he's talking about those he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, metamorphumai, conformed, so that we could be the firstborn among many brethren. These he also predestined. He also called. And these he called, he also justified. And these he justified. So calling... One of the things that, that's, that's a big part of our lack of biblically complete conversions today is when you're truly converted by the true gospel, not only will you receive a new creation that's, that's full of new power and new motivations and new attitudes and a new purpose, you'll begin to sense that you're called to be about God's bigger corporate purpose. And until you really kind of start to become a friend of God and passionate about what God is doing, you've received a reduced gospel. Like a, a baby who's born prematurely, taken out with forceps, uh, instead of allowed, allowing to come to full term. So I wish I could develop that more. But a full conversion makes you the bondservant of Christ. In your deepest, deepest motivations, attitudes, and hearts, you become all about him and all about what he cares about. And you have no identity of your own anymore, nor will of your own, just like a Greek bond slave had no... That's why, that's why Mark has no um, genealogy, because he, he's trying, because serve, Jesus came to, says, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. That's the key verse to understand Mark. So Mark doesn't include a genealogy, whereas the other three do. Um, so that uh, we can understand that a servant had no genealogy. A servant belonged to his master. That's called conversion. Now, I'm going to have to skip the point, but I've touched on it, continuation versus discontinuation. Uh, but I, I guess I do want to make one last point where the, in that 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 comment. These are more than spiritual paradigms. These are more than ways of interpreting Scripture. These are principalities and powers. The unbelief paradigm that God doesn't do miracles and heal and no one speaks in tongues and casts out demons and prophesies today. The, the, the no ecclesiology or no doctrine of the church. All of these things are from spiritual forces of wickedness that, that teach these doctrines. They're the doctrines not only of men, fallen men, but of demons. And they're rampant in the church today. Lastly, I want us to think about the kingdom of God, dominion mandate, the Great Commission is the same thing as be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. It isn't go out and share a reduced gospel. It's go out and share the full gospel and change the whole world. So next week, we'll uh, move on to another subject, eight essential elements. We got started a little late. Uh, glad to see you're okay, Daniel. And uh, let's do our coffee and get back up here as quick as we can.